Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org. And, uh, of course, hosted by me, the best-selling author, The Gorilla's Guide to the Balfang Radio, The Gorilla's Dispatch, Volumes 1 and 2. And you can get all of those titles and a heck of a lot more equipment over at BrushBeater.store. Best prices you're going to find on a lot of stuff on the net, particularly communications equipment, but we're adding Quite a bit of uh, things to our repertoire by the day. And uh, today I am sitting down with a fellow author. It's always an, an honor to do that. And he is a children's books author. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people overlook in the prepping sphere and the uh, preparedness community uh, the tactical training community as well, is the kids. We don't necessarily think about how to, in, in many cases, integrate them even into a, a training program. And uh, what's interesting is that I get a lot of parents that come to class that, that bring their kids. Uh, normally are, you know, teenage age or, you know, getting into their early 20s. But that always leads to interesting conversations about training the young ones, you know, and, and kind of getting them on that path. You know, and, and for anybody that, that is uh, maybe might, ha you know, hasn't thought about this before, I urge you to look at any martial culture around the world. Korea is a very good example of this. Japan's a very good example of this. Uh you know, Europe in the Middle Ages was a very good example of this, where children's martial skills training began at a very, very young age. Um, so it, it, it's, it's something that in contemporary society in America, I think that we don't put a lot of emphasis on, and we might need to change that. So with that said, uh, I am joined by Nelson today, and he runs CopperJungle.net. He has got a bunch of children's books that he's authored that I think are absolutely brilliant and are very, and this is more important, they're very, very useful tools in shifting that mindset. Um, brother, it is great to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm super stoked to be here. A um, little bit about me. Uh, my day job is an advertising guy. Um, I've done that at a fairly high level. 
Um, we're heavily dependent on data. If we have time after we talk about books, I think some of your listeners might be really interested to hear just how much data is available commercially on them. Um, I know you talked about, uh, you know, some oh, of the yeah. podcasts, you've talked about Signal, um, you talked about Proton Mail. I think people might be amazed. I know just within my circle, people are amazed just how much information I can put together, you know, without even being, uh, you know, a spook. Um, oh, yeah. On people. And so, it's, it's non-governmental. There's no, not to go down that rabbit hole, although we, we could, there's no legal constraints on what you can do. Uh, generally speaking, as long as you're not, this is something that people have a difficult time with. Uh, you know, they think in terms of well, only big gov is, is a problem. And I'm not saying it's not, but private industry can do a heck of a lot more. And it's and, pretty and scary. When they, and when they team up, that's where, you know, the mm-hmm. federal government's been buying data from Google and Facebook for a decade already and aws aws and they they're not even they're not even the biggest players in the data space google Mm. and facebook are terrible all by themselves but there are also these companies called blue kai iota uh, things that you might you know are not consumer facing brands but they're billion dollar companies and all they do buy aggregate and sell data about what people do online yeah And and your habits when you're talking to your friends um, yep. in all the domains, including over Signal, because what a lot of people don't know about Signal is that it is hosted by Amazon Web Services. Ah, uh, so all those, it, all those patterns. Yeah. I, to, I mm-hmm. told a friend about that podcast, and he's like, "Well, I'm just going to get a burner phone." I'm like, "I don't think you get it." There, there's a profile for no. every one of us. And, and it's distributed, right? It's they're, they're centralized, but it's network centralization. And you can't just take one node out. There's each of these companies has a profile on basically every internet user, whether you have an account with Signal, Amazon, Google, Facebook, whatever, whether you've got an account or not, if you're accessing the internet, everything mm-hmm. that you do on that device is being tagged to that device and it is being aggressively mapped back to a mm-hmm. personal profile of you that includes what websites you visited, what media you consume, what podcasts you listen to, mm-hmm. um, where you shop. I mean, there was that big hullabaloo recently about um, the the credit card industry adding a, a firearms category to its merchant to its merchant codes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. The industry is miles beyond that. You, I, I can personally go get specific data on what people are buying. You buy ammo, you buy guns, you buy optics, you buy books about it. That's out there. I can put together a, I, I can put together a list of people who shop at gun stores, read gun reviews, re listen to podcasts. And I'm not, I'm not even in the government. So, right. you know, I have friends who, who see the same things that you see coming and they're like, I'm, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to I'm going to buy my land. I got some guys that got farms. They got hunting property. They got cabins. I'm going to go sit this one out. I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're already on a list that I can pull. <laughs> yep. it, it's it, and it's one of those things that people have. a, a They have one or one of two interesting answers for that. It, it'll either be the. Uh, the, the more useless of the two answers of, 
well, I guess there's just nothing I can do about it. And they're not going to correct their bad habits, uh, which is the worst of the two. And, and of course, then there's the, the more positive answer of, well, then how do we approach this? And the way you do that is compartmentalization. That's, that's all you can do is compartmentalization. But even compartment, even for that, even for that, for consumers, right? You're probably you, you're, uh, yeah, what are you you're still going to get got. Yeah, what are you going to compartmentalize? If you go exactly. you know, talk about my friend who's got a burner phone, I was talking to him. It's like what? What are you going to pay for that phone with? You're going to pay for it in cash? You're going to connect it to your home Wi-Fi? Are you going to mm-hmm. connect it to a cell tower that your phone also connects to? Yeah. Are you so going to connect you it? Yeah, who are you calling? Are you going to call them at the same times? Are you going to be visiting the same websites? Are you going to use any of the same apps? Are you going to be, uh, you know, do you pay for it with a credit card? Do you, you, you know, do you have the bill sent to the same address? Mm-hmm. Unless Relationship you mapping. That, yeah. Right. Relationship mapping is too easy with phones. I mean, I can do that. I, I can do that on anyone if I have their phone number. Uh, it, it's, it, I can do that. And so if I can do that, you know, it, it, with using, there's many tools out there, but Multigo is, is one of the more interesting ones because it harvests such a broad swath of data. Um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's skimming a lot. And, and one of the things that it has the ability to do is particularly as it applies to phones I can pair multiple pieces of data about a target at once, and then I can map out where they've been. Um, I, I can geolocate them based on where they access the internet, where they access mobile carriers, and that's not law enforcement doing that. That's not uh, Big Gov doing that. That's something I can do from yeah, do literally do any laptop. We do the same thing in advertising, and we call, we even call it targeting. Yep. Now we're targeting totally. with advertising, not not something <laughs> kinetic, but you know the the targeting parameters yeah. are the same. Um, and I think that you know to go back to your point about how people respond to that, I think that first that's actually kind of why I started the project with children's books is to get around that first response where people just shut down. They hear yep. about this and they're, they're, they're I mean, it's, it's terrifying. It's really scary. A lot of people don't want to handle that. Um, I think if we can shift the culture, um, and it may be very small scale, right? If, but if we can shift the culture um, to get people warmed up to that, so that's mm-hmm. not a cold intro, uh, that's one way. Um, if we can, if we can shift the culture so that there are enough groups of people who value privacy to start fighting back against some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, um, you know, those are potentially tools and, you know, they're much longer term. They're much bigger. It's a much bigger project than, you know, compartmentalizing your own comms, but they're potentially things that, that help. And so that's why I started the, these, um, these making these kids books, because I saw the culture is only going one way right? Submit, take the easy road. This is convenient. Opt in, check the box. And it was only going one way. And so I, I basically started trying to build a little counter propaganda cell for my own family. 
how, how, how do I tell my kids not to do this? How do I prepare my kids for a world where, you know, they're going to have to deal with this. Right. Right. And, and, you know, in, in your books, uh, you have a, a particularly good, and I really, really like how you approach the material, um, not in a controversial way, uh, you know, and, and so to get specific, um, your, your book on uh, small unit tactics for kids, uh, my son, my oldest son, absolutely loves that book uh, for the artwork, just for the artwork alone. Um, there's no, you're not... You're not beating anyone over the head with the the why, but you're putting a strong emphasis on the how, which I think is the, the best way that you can approach a topic, especially for kids. Um, it's something that's very easy, easy for them conceptually to digest because that's with, with early childhood development um, and even you know going into the adolescent years, at least American culture puts an emphasis on how to do things. And we kind of answer the why, it, you know, somewhere a little bit later down the road. And you, 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 you're effectively doing that, whether it was intentional or not uh, in, in the book. But uh, I, I particularly enjoyed that. And I thought it was a breath of fresh air compared to other children's books that we see that, uh, you know, have absolutely no business in, in our, our children's libraries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm stoked to hear that your son loves it. I mean, first of all, anytime a kid loves a book that I make, like that's, that's the audience that's, you know, yeah, adults can love it. That's great. I'm always happy to hear positive feedback or even some negative feedback sometimes, but I'm always happy to hear that an adult likes it. But when a kid likes it, that's like, that's how you know you hit the mark. And that how, why dichotomy was actually very intentional because the way that we approach the martial sphere in our culture is actually the exact opposite of that, isn't it? Where we're inundated with the hows of violence, right? The kids are watching Marvel, they've got Call of Duty, they got Saw movies, but there's nothing useful, yeah. there's no how. You are absolutely not allowed to practice or learn that skill set. If you point finger guns yeah. on the playground, you're suspended. Right. And so trying to fill that gap where we've got kids that are, you know, I mean, my, my son's three and he's already, he loves his Nerf guns and water guns. And it's like, yeah. he's well help him learn how he's, how to use that if he ever needs to. You know, it, it, it's, it's a strong breath of fresh air to hear you, you put these statements into perspective the, the way that you are, you know, and, and you're exactly right. And I think and it's ironic because I was literally having a conversation about this uh, just a bit ago uh, with public school, public education in particular. Um, there's, it is structured in a particular way and, and for a reason, as, as you're no doubt familiar with, but with the listeners, um, for example, something that's a, that's a big eye opener uh, for me. And, and I grew up, you know, not in a wealthy area. I'm a, a product of public school, uh, public education myself, but uh, things that you don't necessarily know uh, from the sociological perspective, you know, we call this, we would call this, uh, class consciousness. You, you're not aware of it 
until you're exposed to something on the outside that, you know, shows you, hey, uh, you know, you didn't know you were poor until you, you know, you saw what wealthy people were. And you say, oh, wait a minute, you know. Uh, but but the, where I'm going with that is, is that in public school, public education sector, the way that public education is structured tracks students. And they do this from a, a increasingly young age uh, that, that you're you're put on the uh, higher ed track early on. So you're, you're going to have things that are more geared towards college pipeline. You'll have the professional education track, which is kind of in the middle. These students may or may not go to college, uh, but they definitely will pick up a, a, some sort of trade. So they're, they're going to do more of the vocational stuff. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, the, the lower end track that, you know, it's some derogatorily called the, the uh, school to prison pipeline. But it, 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 you know, and, and, and unfortunately, this does exist and it is referred to in that way. Uh, but what you don't understand and what not you, but most people don't understand about public education is that the, the bell system, for example, is to get all the students conditioned to originally it was conditioned to working in a factory. Then it becomes conditioned to conformity. Uh, you must conform to, to society's rules. If you go into a private school or even a charter school, one that where all of the students are pushed towards that, that professional track, college education track, they don't have that anymore. These, these things cease to exist. And it is, it is a very different perspective that is uh, imparted on students. It's very fascinating to see this. Uh, the sociology of education. Uh, this is this is studied in depth. There's there's a lot that's published on it. Um, what you pointed out, you know, with the it, it's you point a, you point a finger gun at one another. You know, in, in a private school, you'd face expulsion, um, which you know it would, would you'd probably in that income bracket, you're probably going into you know, in another private school or a donation will be made and it'll get smoothed over. Right? But in the public schools, what we experience is really an affront to individualism, an affront to um, masculinity. And that that I think is is reflective of, of your statement here, because they, they don't want right now we, we see this. This this is kicked up into overdrive in the public education sector. It's it, it's a whole scale affront to masculinity. They don't they, the more masculine you are, alpha male behaviors. We're going to do those things. Uh, um, you know, fights, for example. These these are we we can sit and say, well, you know, uh, nobody likes to bully, and we don't, you know, we, kids shouldn't fight and whatever. That's fine, but this is also a natural way that humans create social order. We do this from from literally from birth. We're doing this, and 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 it is a natural thing. The schools don't want any of that, and the 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 public education sector right now is a complete front to masculinity in totes, uh, which is very disappointing. It's very concerning for our our societies going. And I think you you're uh, the way that you are broaching this topic is is really really good. It's it's not just masculinity. It's as you mentioned, individualism. It's uh, femininity too is being under undermined. 
um, the ability to think, um, and it's all, it's very, very intentional. I've stuck my toe into the um, kind of the academic side of that. You go and read papers on queer theory and, um, you know, some of that stuff that's out there, queer theory, critical race theory, and it's all, it's extremely intentional. Everything about public schools, people look at public schools and they go, this, this system is broken. It's not broken. It's doing exactly right. what it was designed to do. That's right. You're this exactly fact, right. Yeah. You got teachers oh, go saying two plus two equals five. That's not that they're too stupid. Uh, well, some of the some some of the the people in this machine probably are some, right. but that two plus two equals five is a very intentional mechanism to debase truth, because if you remove truth um, and you let everybody find their own truth, what the Marxists have figured out is if you give everybody, if you just let everybody loose, you let all these kids loose without any sense of direction, the direction that they naturally go is the way everybody else goes. It's it's an intentional mechanism to teach conformity. Absolutely. That's, that is, uh, you know, and, and it's important to have that conversation from the academic side of the house. You know, when, when you're pulling up critical race theory, queer theory, these are, these are all based in Marxism from, from its outset. So in sociology, when these, these, uh, concepts are being taught to undergrads or at the graduate level. It always will begin with a question about social structure. And so the theory behind social structure, uh, structural functionalism is, is a big part of it. Uh, why we have structures as, as part of our, our social order that, that maintains stability. But the, the question is not in, in contemporary sociology, which early childhood education is a product of. Uh, it comes from that ideological framework in the academic pipeline. Um, so when we approach that question, it is not sociologists, at least it, in contemporary sociology, it is not from the perspective of understanding why they work. It's from the perspective of how to change them and alter them. Uh, to satisfy the broader theory known as conflict theory. Uh, conflict theory is Marxism. It, it was given a different name. Uh, Herbert Marcuse in the, the uh, Frankfurt School gave it a different name because in his words, it was the, the, ideo the specific ideology of Marxism was too narrow. They wanted to broaden it. They wanted to broaden things so that it could be encompassed in many different domains. But he was a communist revolutionary. Uh, and and uh, because a lot of people don't even know who he was, uh, this Herbert Marcuse is, was the the founding father of everything that we see today in the, the modern education system, you know, and, and all of it. Uh, and, and it's all in its its end state is to bring society down. Yeah, yeah. And the Frankfurt School came out of the, um, if I remember correctly, the failure of the Paris Communes. And that's where they came to the conclusion that Marxism was too narrow because enough people ha had this class consciousness inculcated and just didn't care. Yes. And so they said, well, what, well, what, how else can we divide people up? And from the Frankfurt right. School, that, that led directly in, in, in the West and in, in the U.S. in particular to race, to gender, to religion. Right. Uh, 
All these are easy is. fractures. These are very easy social fractures that can be exploited. Uh, you know, race and class conditions. And the United States, uh, class conditions are, they're a more difficult one to exploit without race. Uh, and and the, the reason for that is, is and, and this is why we see uh, the Marxists uh, that, that will use terminology like white privilege and lumping everybody in together. And so, you, you, you know, there's no more room for at the aggregate level, you know, middle class, maybe lower middle class. They're not concerned with this. This is also why, uh, ironically, you know, we've got the UAW strike and, and you know, kind of the, the drama around that. That's very interesting to watch uh, because the left, for the most part, the militant left, has abandoned organized labor. It's, it's where it really gained its teeth in the United States, uh, but they have abandoned it. And, and a lot of your, your uh, labor union workers, the, the actual workers who, who are working for GM and uh, Stellantis and, you know, Ford, uh, these are demographically, at least based on the 2020 election and the 2016 election, demographically, they're going to vote for Trump. Um, they, they're a member of UAW out of convenience. Uh, United Steelworkers are very similar. And so at the street level, the, the militant left is realizing that. And so that's why when, when you, know, you look at places like Portland, Seattle, Atlanta, that are traditional homes for this, this uh, militant activity, they use other language and they use other uh, methods of attack because they know that that social structure is that there's not really so much of a fraction there anymore uh, or a fracture there anymore that, that they can exploit. Workers versus managers, that used to be one of the splits, and it just kind of ran its course. Right. You started getting in the late 90s and early 2000s, you started getting the right to work. And it became uh -huh. popular. A lot of these guys who are talking about being members of a union for convenience sake, like, man, I'd really rather have my dues. Yeah. I'd really, I'd really rather just have that money. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that was part of the, the motivation to abandon that and move on. Yep. Yeah, 100 percent. That's um, but but it all I think. It all comes down to the fact that, that a lot of parents out there still and, uh, you know, I, I experienced this in, in my local community, uh, a lot of parents that are out there that still look at it like, well, you know, I'm not going to give up on public education. I don't like that drag queen story time hour stuff. And you know, we'll go and we'll we'll talk to the school board, thinking that you're going to get somewhere with that. But look at how far we're already down the road. You know, and and I can also say simultaneously that there are. You know, when I was growing up, and, and you know, I'm I'm in my late thirties. When I was growing up, there, there was only one kid that I knew of that was homeschooled. Only one. He was it. And, you know, it, it was, it, 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 you know, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but he was the weird kid. You know, he, he would come to the birthday parties and stuff. And it was like, eh, he didn't really socialize with the other kids, right? But now, now you know, this is 30 years removed from that time. There are a lot of people who are homeschooling now, uh, you know, way, way more than in decades past, maybe more uh, in any than, than in any other modern 
uh, or era in the modern modern uh, times in, in America. I was and that's a really that good thing. Kid. I was homeschooled. I was that weird kid. I'm still that weird kid, right? I mean, I'm I'm the one leaving Madison Avenue to write kids' books. So, well, hey, I mean, you know what I mean, though. He he was a little awkward. It, it was he he spoke like an adult, you know. Whereas we're we're kind of you know conforming with our cohort and and speaking on the level of our cohort, and you know he's over here. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, think it is. I don't think it is a knock. I, I mean, I think <laughs> I'm very happy with how I wound up. I, you know, there were times yeah. in you know, middle school and early high school in particular, they were really mad at my parents or why do you homeschool me? Why'd you make me so weird? Um, but I'm very happy they did it now. I thank them profusely. I think uh, my mother in particular, um, very long, long-term vision. She saw a lot of this coming 30 years ago. Um, she saw where this was going to go. Um, well, didn't get that indoctrination, you know, there's, I mean, even even in you know rural North Carolina, where I grew up, everybody's pretty much on the same level, you know. And and there's there's a lot of poverty. There's you know a lot of kids. It's something that I was talking about. Is you know we have a class going on right now. Interestingly enough, about uh, uh, you know we were talking about data harvesting, cybersecurity. I, I have a good friend, and, and you. That was probably the podcast you listened to, uh, Kay, Combat Studies Group. Yep. Uh, you know, he's he's a former uh, other governmental agency guy, and, and this is one of the things that that he did specifically targeting. He put together coursework for it. And he's got his course going on right now, and um, it, we, we've had a lot of conversations about you know different things, and uh, you know, with the students here sharing those experiences, it's, it's a heck of a lot of fun, and. Uh, you know, one of the things I was, I was talking about, we ran into uh, one of the nearby towns, had to pick up some stuff. And, uh, you know, there's, every town has has those rough spots, you know, where it's like, hey, yeah, yeah I'm going to read you on to the, the local flora and fauna. Uh, hey, th these are some of the places you want to stay out of. And uh, made a joke because I, a couple of years ago, I had a, a guy come to class who, who grew up on Kensington Avenue in Philly. I mean, that's about as rough as it gets. You know, Kensington is, I mean, you, Kensington even has live cams on YouTube. You can you can look it up and you, you can see it. I mean, it, you know, it's just like, man, people exist like this. But, um, you know, I told him, hey, you know, don't go to this, don't go to this part of town after dark. And ironically, that's the first part of town that you hit when you're you're going to get groceries and whatever else. Um, he's like, oh, no, I'm fine. I grew up on Kensington Avenue, whatever. And, uh, you know, came back and he goes, oh, I see what you're talking about, man. That, that's it's pretty rough out there, you know. And so, you know, we kind of we, we grew up with all of that, you know. And then when you, you launch into college, you start to see people from, from vastly different walks of life and you realize some things, you know, and, and uh, but the, the publication sector, where we were then, like 30 years ago, to where we are now, um, and it's only getting worse. You know, this, this uh, revolution in education, and not a revolution in a good way, is really being driven by higher-level academia. And that's, that's the veil uh, 
that people don't see that the parents aren't going to see. They, they're, you, you're not going to see that. And what we see in the public space, at least in, in my experience, what people are seeing in the public space, what's bubbling up now, the queer theory stuff, the uh, these, these um, uh, perverted books that they're putting in education libraries, at, at, even at the elementary level. Um, this is all stuff that, that sociologists were talking about a decade ago. When I got out of the army and I went into academia, this, that was the conversation then that was happening. And this was what was being taught at the, the advanced degree levels. Now it's having, it, it's a 10 year trickle down effect. So if you want to know where this is going, pay attention to what academia is doing. You know, well, pick I up a copy of sociology today. Scary stuff. Yeah. Because, right, you know, they're all, uh, disinformation, misinformation. But wrong thing. You know, <laughs> jumping, ju jumping around a little bit. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah the sociology angle, dude, we could, we could dive into it. I might get in a little trouble for it, but whatever. I don't care. Uh, what are they going to do? Censor me again? Uh, they already did they'll, one time. They'll try. They'll try. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's whatever. The, this this podcast has, you know, 16,500 and some subscribers to it. They're going to find it, uh, you know, it, and, and so, yeah, there it is. But um, leading you, what, what you led into the, the, the show, with, let's let's revisit that. Man. Let's let's talk about. So, you know, data harvesting and how how we're being targeted by advertising agencies and how that, that data could be weaponized, man. What is your recommendations for mitigating those risks? That's a really good question. Yes, <laughs> that, I should have seen, that I should have seen coming. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of it to me, um, you know, I still got a day job. I write under my real name. Um, that's where the cultural aspect of it came in because I don't know. I, do, I see how pervasive this is. I don't know how you can live a normal life. I don't even know how you can live a, like a, a country off the grid life and not get picked up on this stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, it's so, so pervasive. Um, and you can need to be black pilled about it and you can say, well, you know, I, I guess that's the end. They're, they're going to come and get us, but the white pill is they haven't done it yet. Why? How do we double down on those areas? Um, you know, how do we teach our kids? How do we, how do we create cultural groups, um, that, that can resist, that can resist this. Right. Um, right. One of the areas that we, we probably need to work on, um, is, you know, hearts and minds. It's, it's, you know, we need our own propaganda. We need our own, um, stories. We need our own media. I mean, channels like this, fantastic. Um, you know, in, in selling this book and pitching this book, I don't want to spend any money with Google and Facebook. How do I, right. how do I market this book in a way that, that reaches my target audience? And like that media landscape does not exist. That's not fair. It exists. It's, it's very young, very <clears> nascent. <throat> um, and if, I think that's, that's gotta be part of it. Gotta be part of it. Yeah. Um, I've been an advocate in the past of using signal and proton mail. Um, not because I think you're going to hide from the spooks. I've never thought that I was going to, be able to have that kind of capability. Right. Um, but just to normalize 
thinking about your data, thinking about where it goes, um, you know, understanding that if you do it on the internet, just assume it's not, just assume it's tracked to you. Yep. Unless, unless you really, really, really know better. And like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It, it, it's folks would, would, you know, it'll blow their minds. I mean, and, and, I, I want to say something too to to the audience. I don't think that, that anybody will get it confused. We're not we're not advocating, you know. Oh, you know, don't use clandestine messaging and you know the the encrypted stuff. It's it's really a game to stand just stand ahead of the curve. You know what what we do today is not how we're going to do things tomorrow. You know it, it's it's certain things are timeless, right? Techniques are timeless. But the technology is in perpetuity. Um, networks, networks are timeless. Yes. Connect, connect to people that think like you. Find. Um, I just posted a blog post on uh, Substack last week. You know, start a cigar club. I just start having a couple guys from the neighborhood around. Yeah. Find, find people that that think like you. Connect with them. You don't have to. You know, you don't have to go set up your own FTX lane in the backyard. Like, just exactly connect to people. Because uh, right now, we, you know, we're all we're all over because we don't have, you know, we don't have a centralized um, media ecosystem. You, you know, there's there's a lot more um, different groups on the conservative side of things than they're on the left. The left is whatever the New York Times says. That's it. That goes. And that's the thing today. Um, we've all we've all got, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. It's uh. That's ironic too, you know the 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 whole issue with the the New York Times. I thought I've I've found that very very ironic because, you know, as a little aside, <clears throat> the uh, the New York Times in two thousand one, two thousand two, two that two thousand three, especially, um, a lot of people on the the far left sphere of things the, the quote-unquote anti-war sphere of things back then and you know um back in the, the my undergrad years uh i was it, it was just very fascinating to see their perspective on stuff at the time you know and of course you know i eventually went into the army and everything i was you know very very different uh politically uh than them but it was interesting to pay attention to and uh, where did all that go? You know, the New York Times went from advocating the invasion of Iraq and a fabrication of a story about weapons of mass destruction to all of a sudden becoming the, the paper of, of the uh, anti-war left. Um, and now, of course, they're cheerleading war in the military industrial complex. Uh, I, I just find it very ironic. Uh, in in totes and and of course they'll demonize people like you and I. Uh, anyone with with uh, that, that violates the caricature that they create for uh, you know a pushback on the right. You know we 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 see this over and over again. We see the the caricatures that they create um, that that are you know cartoon characters. People with shaved heads and you know doing the whole Roman salute and all that that garbage. That are that are just staged, and of course they're getting their script uh, on this. And then, of course, when when they speak 
when they come across people who actually have strong education backgrounds, high IQs or articulate, uh, who are writing children's books, it becomes a, a far more hard target for them uh, because it's, that that is an actual threat that's natural uh, to them. That is that is a threat, and it's a pushback. It's a solution. Yeah, well, I think I think over the last twenty years, there's been a re you know the the irony of where did the anti-war left go? I think there's been a realignment, and COVID was a huge huge part of this. Um, there's been a realignment between people who are willing to by the narrative and people who aren't. And I, you, I, I've, I've, you know, I've got some friends who used to be left-wing and, you know, independent left-wing thinkers, right? Like guys you can sit down and have a conversation with. You're not going to agree with them, but like they can at least talk about it. They can at least defend their position. And they're like, what happened? I mean, the same as we are. Right. And they're like, am I conservative now? I was like, eh, maybe. <laughs> you still, I mean, you still argue for the working man. You still... Still anti-war, like yeah, maybe you are. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm totally in any one camp, uh, but yeah, for me, even though I, you know, it, it, it an appeal to to conservative values for sure. Um, but there, there's certain certain perspectives that I hold. Uh, you know, organized labor being one of them, and, and you know, it, not necessarily in the sense of what it is today, but. If you go to work for a large scale company and, you know, you're there, you're one of 50 employees or 100 employees, um, you know, and, and the boss is not taking care of you. And it's gotten to the point uh, where in whatever industry you're in that they don't just control the market for the products that, the, that you're building. But they, in fact, control the market for labor as well. So the, the exploitation begins and that's something that i'm, I'm a very strong advocate of, of um, you know collectivizing in, in that sense because you need to uh, for a lot of reasons protection of quality of goods protection of, of labor itself and it, it's something that holds you know i find a lot of folks on the right who complain about uh amazon for example oh you know bezos is a, a commie no he's not he's a cap He's a, he's a capitalist. He's a, this this is what they do. He's a, corp he's a corporatist. Exactly. Look at look at uh, a good book on this is is uh, Klein Skousen's The Naked Capitalist. It, you know, many people know The Naked Communist is wonderful book, great book. But the the companion book is Naked Capitalist, and and that'll explain a lot of corporate practices and how they go into influence things that are very negative for America. Um, just as the communists do, and, and we found this, we found ourselves in this very ironic time, where there's very little differentiation between corporatism in many uh, spaces that, that are dominating the markets, Amazon being one, uh, and the Marxists at the street level. They, they're they one is supporting the other in a, in a very very interesting way. Uh, that you know, as a sociologist, I find this very fascinating. Um, very, very fascinating. It's not going to last either. Have you are, have you read N.S. Lyons' The Upheaval? Mm -hmm. The China Convergence. I, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was a good it, bit. Yes, yes. That's uh, very rare. Do I get to have these conversations? So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting. I mean, you're looking at me. I'm sitting here bouncing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, 
Yeah, because I, normally, normally when we we dive deep, if I dive deep into the sociology end of things, people are like, Rah. I think uh, the interview I did with Ian Burlingame, we kind of got the closest to that because he's he's more in the the psychiatry end, but still, you know, I have to go looking look that at. One up. Oh man! Oh, so Ian Burlingame, the Eternal War. Uh, that podcast he and I did is a couple months back. It was a couple yeah. months back. He I, I is. Just uh, out, I just found out about you on this project to to you know show this book where uh, yeah, right I talked to some other people and they're like you stuck to NC Scott and I looked you up I was like I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of you. Um, I love your stuff. <laughs> I've been working my way through your your back catalog. Um, oh yeah, school drop offs. Um, so I'm gonna have to go look that one up. Yeah, man, it, that's you know it, it's. Uh, that that podcast, I think that you would you in particular would get a lot out of that. You you would really really enjoy that because he goes into um, something that I think is very fascinating. Uh, not anything that I studied in a uh, necessarily a professional sense. I just think that it's fascinating and it dovetails very well with um, uh, symbolic interactionism, the theory of symbolic interactionism in, in sociology that basically we we present a character of ourselves to the world uh that how we we present ourselves as a, a costume um it's actually it's heavily it's actually heavily referenced in advertising yep right absolutely people, it, it's it's how a lot of stuff based on what is this going to do to the symbol you present to the world mm -hmm. abercrombie and fitch they, their ads from the i think guess it was the early 2000s into the mid 2000s they were a great case study in that you know, you, you want to be those models. You you want to be the, and if you're not them, you're you have no value. That's why they were so so controversial because it, but it was highly effective marketing. Highly effective. Kids, you know kids are still wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. Are they really? That's how effective it was. Yeah. Wow. And I thought all that stuff went away. I mean, I haven't, did, I haven't stepped for, foot in a mall in like a long time. So I don't, I, I don't know. They're, they're, they're really still wearing Abercrombie. That stuff is still around. I've like, seen man, it. I thought that was like a. Yeah, that I don't was think it's going as hard there. as it was, but I've seen it. I've seen it. Oh, man. That's. Uh... <laughs> When we go from having a, this in-depth conversation, we're like, man, that probably fits still around. Wow. Mind is blown, man. But uh, nah, but Ian Burlingame is talking about his, his like, core uh, theory. And he, he's such an interesting guy, man. He's, he's modern-day renaissance, man. I think he'd really, really enjoy it. He, uh, he grew up in a hippie commune. So, like, his, his mom's a hippie, you know, grew up in this, a hippie commune environment. And, uh, you know, where he's just kind of a feral kid with, like, you know, ho homeschooled also, but, you know, like, just it, it not very, very yeah. unstructured. You know, a lot of people confuse homeschooling for being unstructured. And, you know, several of my family members are homeschooling their kids. And, you know, that that's that that's really awesome. And, and a lot of our, our uh, family friends and stuff are, too. But, um you know, there's a lot of structure here, but Burlingame's whole theory on uh, like the, the foundational level of, of social interaction and symbolic interactionism is that we develop language to lie to one another. 
And I was like, man, that blows my mind. You know, like the whole reason that we started speaking to each other is so that we could formulate lies to one another. Have three friends over hill, give old food. (laughs) He's like, I, I said, yeah, but, you know, I was always under the impression we we had spoken language to articulate uh, the history of our tribe from from the beginning of of you know the, the that's why we began to do and the whole reason we did that was so that we would understand and be able to pass down culture from us to to future generations and explain to them early on you know here's how you hunt here's how you do these things and he goes yeah but animals do that without spoken language. He goes. He goes. How do wolf packs function? Well, but yeah. but so, but apes apes unique to wolves mm-hmm. engage in combat. True. Exactly. We experience evolutionary pressure to be better at organization, not just in our prey, but then each other. That's right. That's right. And he, he I'm telling you, man, it, it that that show that blew my mind. I was like, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, yeah, and, and the, that pushback, the, that example, um, the fact that, you know, wolves do, in fact, have, a, have, have the genesis of a spoken language. Um, more intelligent breeds of, of domesticated dogs do as well. They, they actually do. They have ways they communicate. Any, anybody that's had a, a, you know, one of the higher IQ dogs knows this. Um, but you know, but they with German shepherds, they could. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And my parents, when I was when I was in high school, my parents had two of them, and I don't know how they were talking, but they were talking. They do. Australian shepherds do it too. They would, they would, they would trap rabbits in the yard. Mm -hmm. They'd faint. One of them would go one way, and the rabbit would go the other, and then the other one would go around and catch it. It's fascinating to watch, like. As a kid, it's kind of morbid, but at the same time, hey man, you know, like that's nature, that's real. This is the packing order. Yeah, you're either a predator or you're the prey. Yeah. So it's, it, oh man. But that that's it. Bringing it back to the book, brother. Like this is this is how you become the predator and not the prey. Exactly. And uh, you know the the way I. I particularly really enjoyed when, when I read the book, uh, you know, and, and my wife thought that this was really, really cool too. Uh, the way that you approach this and we read it, we read it separately. Uh, I read it out in the office and I left it out there so that, that prying eyes wouldn't grab it uh, immediately. You know, and, and, uh, prying eyes being, being my oldest son would grab it. And, you know, before I got the chance, cause he's, he's, he can be a little hard on books. Um, he, he really, really gets into it, uh, when he's reading stuff. And, uh, then my youngest son will, he'll, he'll jump in too. Um, uh, then it, that's, it's all said and done. But, um, you know, when my wife read it, she noted the same things that I did. She said, this is, this is really smart in that it is breaking large scale concepts down to simple concepts that are very relatable to kids. And it's doing it in a apolitical way as well, which I think was the smartest move that, that uh, an author could have made for making a book like this. Um, 
It's one of a kind. I appreciate that. It was one I struggled with. I I, I spent a long time trying to get that right. This is great, man. That is, it's, it's, again, folks, at at, uh, copperjungle.net, these, if you've got kids, these are must-haves on the bookshelf. Um, I know that, that this, they become staple reading now uh, in my household, and it's right up there with the Hungry Hungry Caterpillar. So that should tell you something. I mean, because I've never met a kid that didn't love the Hungry Hungry Caterpillar, and, you know, it's right up there with it. Well, thank you, Migo. It's great to have that kind of endorsement. It's uh, This has been a heck of a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with you, being on here. Thanks for giving me a platform to talk about this and, you know, helping build a, a media ecosystem that we can all use and you're doing God's work. Well, you are too, brother. You are too. And I really appreciate that. I'm going to have you back on soon, very soon. Uh, training schedule is going to be picking up going into October. I'm going to get you back on because I, I have a feeling just from the, the, Easygoing conversation that we've had. I can't believe that the, the clock has rolled on as, as long as it has. But we're just scratching the surface on some very fascinating concepts, man. Agreed. Agreed. I love, <laughs> I love having these conversations, too, just like you. I don't get to have a ton of these, so I really appreciate it. This is, this is a whole lot of fun. Absolutely, brother. Folks, copperjungle.net. He has got several titles up there that are must-haves on the bookshelf. They're beautifully illustrated, by the way, which is a must-have uh, with with children's books, especially if, you you know, your kids are, are like mine. They get really fascinated with minor details, and they, they're looking at, at all the things in the illustration and the, all of the stuff that's supporting the story that's going on. I'm telling you, you're... you're you are not going to be disappointed. You, these are going to be cherished, and uh, we, you know, we don't have enough great children's literature out there now. We, we got to counter all of that. Nelson, you sir are doing God's work. Thank you. All right, folks, check it out, copperjungle.net. I'm going to have a link down below, and you'll be able to see the links over on AmericanPartisan.org. We're going to be putting those up periodically because I believe very, very strongly in educating the kids and getting as many references as you can in that. Get them started in those small unit tactics. Get them started in that. Um, You know, when I was growing up, one of the, the... Six, seven, eight years old, playing army out in the woods. That was that was what it was all about. And you learn all kinds of stuff doing that. This book is something that gives them a little bit of structure to go along with it. Folks, thank you for being with us, sharing yet another hour here. God bless you. I hope everything is well on your end, and we will be talking again very, very soon. This is NC Scout. Now.